Well, it was a few weeks ago that our brother Mark preached a message on revival, and he showed us some examples of revival from the Old Testament. And we learned that a revival is when there is a renewed passion for God amongst the people of God. A widespread move of God where God's covenant people develop a greater awareness of their sin and a greater desire to do God's will. And so to revive means to make alive again, which assumes that something has been alive already. So a revival is something that we recognize happens among believing people. But there is another term we use when a similar kind of divine work happens among unbelievers, and we would call that an awakening. An awakening is a peculiar move of God upon a large number of unconverted people whereby they are made aware of the holiness of God and of their guilt before God and they are awakened to their need for Christ. Probably the most well-known of these divine works happened here on American soil in the mid-1700s and it is known as the Great Awakening. Nathan Cole was alive at the time and he kept a journal recording his experience of this great awakening when he went and heard the evangelist George Whitfield preach in Middletown, Connecticut in 1740. This encounter had such a profound impact on his life. We can see through his own writings what an impact they had and what happened widespread at this very time some 300 years ago. This is what Cole writes. He says, Now it pleased God to send Mr. Whitfield into this land, and I felt the Spirit of God drawing me by conviction. I longed to see and hear him and wished he would come this way. I heard he had come to New York and the Jerseys with a great multitude flocking after him, all under great concern for their souls, which brought on my concern more and more. Then, completely by surprise, one morning about eight or nine o'clock, there came a messenger who said that Mr. Whitfield is to preach at Middletown this morning at ten o'clock. I was in my field at the time, and I dropped my tools and ran home, ran through my house, and called for my wife, telling her to make ready quickly to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach at Middletown. I then ran to my pasture from my horse with all my might, fearing that I should be too late to hear him. I mounted the horse along with my wife, and we went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear, And when my horse got much out of breath, I would get down and leave my wife on the saddle and tell her to ride as fast as she could and not stop or slack for me, unless I called her. And so I would run until I was much out of breath, and then mount my horse again, and so I did this several times to favor my horse. We improved every moment to get along as if we were fleeing for our lives all the while fearing we should be too late to hear the sermon. For we had twelve miles to ride double in little more than an hour. 
All along the twelve miles I saw no man at work in his field, but all seemed to be gone. And when we came within about half a mile or a mile of the road that comes down from Hartford, on high land I saw before me a cloud or fog rising. I first thought it came from the great river, but as I came near the road I heard a noise, something like a low rumbling thunder, and presently found it was the noise of horses' feet coming down the road. And this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the horses. It arose many yards into the air over the tops of the hills and trees. And when I came within about twenty yards of the road, I could see men and horses riding along in the cloud like shadows. And as I drew nearer, it seemed like a steady stream of horses and their riders. There was scarcely a horse more than a length behind another, all of a lather and foam with sweat their breath rolling out of their nostrils on every turn. Every horse seemed to go with all its might to carry its rider, to hear news from heaven for the saving of souls. It made me tremble to see the sight and how the world seemed to be in such a struggle. We went down in the stream with everyone pressing forward in great haste. And when we got to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was said to be three or four thousand people assembled together. We dismounted and shook off our dust, and the ministers were then coming to the meeting house. I turned and looked toward the great river and saw the ferry boats running swift backward and forward, bringing over loads of people, and the oars rode nimble and quick. Everything, men, horses, and boats, seemed to be struggling for life. The land and banks over the river looked black with people and horses. When I saw Mr. Whitfield come upon the platform, he looked almost angelic. A young, slender youth before some thousands of people with a bold, undaunted countenance. This scene put into me a trembling fear before he began to preach. For he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God, and a sweet soberness sat upon his brow. And my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessings, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. It pleased God to bring on my convictions more and more and I was loaded with the guilt of sin. And I saw that I was undone forever. I carried such a weight of sin in my mind that it seemed to me as I should sink into the ground every step. This kind of awakening is uncommon. While man throughout the history of the church has spent much time and energy trying to manufacture moves of God, as Mark explained a couple of weeks ago, holding tent revivals and having meetings, calling them revivals, there really have only been a few legitimate moves of God on such a large scale. 
where the Spirit of God begins to move among a people, revealing the holiness of God, revealing the people's condition before God, and revealing the glory of God's remedy in Christ. Nathan's Cole, Nathan Cole's experience was similar to many other testimonies from the mid-1700s. One pastor from this time period recorded that more people came to him in one week troubled over the state of their soul than in his previous 24 years combined. The Great Awakening, which spanned about two decades, was the greatest and most evident move of God that the Western world has ever seen. But it was small in comparison to what God did in the 8th century B.C. when He took a disobedient Jewish prophet and had him preach a message to the ancient world's largest city. What we have recorded for us in Jonah chapter 3 is possibly the greatest awakening in the history of the world. Now, let us review where we've been over the last couple of weeks. We saw that Jonah is a prophet on the run, and he's running from God because God has called him to go to Nineveh to preach a message against that city for their sins were very great. But Jonah refused and ran in the opposite direction, and so he's on the run from God. And as he runs, he boards a ship, and as he boards that ship, God sends a terrible storm, and the sea is raging, and the sailors fear for their lives, and Jonah is found to be the source of their trouble. And so they cast Jonah overboard by his instructions, and that calms the sea, and Jonah finds himself sinking down to the bottom of the ocean, certain to die. God then appoints a great fish to rescue Jonah and put him back on course. And chapter 2 records the prayer that Jonah prays from the belly of this great fish, which we saw last time and which I observed was absent of two major things. Confession of sin and repentance. And so we do not see a prophet who is remorseful for his disobedience. And there is a reason for this. Because even though Jonah disobeyed and ran from God, and even though God had to send this great fish to turn him around and bring him back, Jonah will now go and preach, but he will do so reluctantly. Now, what is Jonah's big hang-up here. I mean, doesn't he want to see people forgiven? I mean, isn't that part of the prophet's job description? Isn't that what he signed up for? You're to go and preach a message by God, and that is for the sake of people's repentance, and you celebrate when they actually repent. Well, Perhaps Jonah wants to see some people forgiven. Maybe he even wants to see most people forgiven. But the issue here is he just doesn't want to see those people forgiven. 
I mentioned briefly the wickedness of the Assyrians in uh, the, the first sermon, and I spared you most of the details, but let me just read you a piece of ancient history to give you a reminder of just how deplorable these people were. This is a writing that was found by one of Assyria's kings, King Asher Nasserpal II. He reigned about a hundred years before Jonah's time, and he wrote boasting of his victories, and this is found in the archives of Assyrian history. And he said this, I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. I flayed their nobles, as many as had rebelled, and spread their skins out on the piles of dead corpses. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands. From others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of their soldiers. In another scroll, recording the same king, he said, I slew 260 fighting men. I cut off their heads and made pyramids with them. I slew one of every two. I built a wall before the great gates of the city. I flayed the chief men of the rebels, and I covered the wall with their skins. Some of them were enclosed alive in the bricks of the wall. Some of them were impaled on stakes along the wall. I caused a great multitude of them to be flayed in my presence, and I covered the wall with their skins. Wow! Somebody needs a hug. So the Assyrians, uh, represented here by this king, had a reputation for, for brutality and violence. And they struck fear into the hearts of their enemies, and because of their enormous evils, Jonah says, I do not want to preach a message to them. And we're told in chapter 4 why. Because he knows God is merciful, and he knows God might forgive them. But, God rescues Jonah from his certain demise in the ocean. He's sinking to the bottom of the sea. He's three days in the belly of the fish. God changes his mind, redirects his course, and now he's belched up onto the shore, and he's got a job to do, albeit reluctantly. Now, I have a Outline for you here, Jonah is full of great outlines, very easily they fall into place. Point number one, we're going to see Jonah returns. Point number two, we're going to see Nineveh repents. And point number three, we will see God relents. So Jonah returns, Nineveh repents, God relents. First of all, Jonah returns. Look at your Bible if you have it open. We will start in the last verse of chapter 2, which is verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, 
and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So here we see Jonah given a second chance. Jonah is called to preach. He is not given the message in advance according to verse 2. He is just told to go. And when he goes, God is going to tell him what to preach. Now, the distance from where Jonah would have landed on the shore to Nineveh is about 600 miles. So imagine if I told you to walk from Fillmore to the border of Northern California. That is about 600 miles, and that is quite a distance. But not only that, you're going that great distance to preach a message you don't want to preach to a people that you hate. That is the picture that we have before us. We're told in verse 2 that Nineveh is a great city. And it is believed to have been the largest city at that time in the world. We also know it's one of the oldest cities. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis 10, there's what's called the Table of Nations where we see this ruler named Nimrod, it's everyone's favorite name, And he builds these cities, and Nineveh is one of those cities. We know today that this is the city of Mosul in Iraq. And if you remember a number of years ago, this is the city that ISIS took over and drove out all of the Christians from. So ISIS had come in, and if you remember, they were painting that one symbol on all of the homes of the Christians And they had an ultimatum. Either you leave or we are going to kill you. Same place. I think it's also fascinating that at that same time, these men, these radical Islamists, destroyed the tomb of Jonah, which was there in Mosul. So this is a well-known place. We can find it on a map. And this is where Jonah is way back when. Verse 4 says that Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the city is so large that he spends an entire day walking to the center of the city. Now I don't know if God compelled him to do that. I don't know if he just figured, well, if I have to preach, I might as well go in the heart of the place where there's going to be the biggest audience. But just to give you an idea of how massive this place really is, this is a very large and populous city. And Jonah's message is very simple and it's very clear. God's wrath is coming and in 40 days you will be overthrown. Now, it's one thing for a prophet to preach to disobedient Israelites, which is what 
the Old Testament prophets usually did. And it's another to enter a hostile Gentile nation such as this was and to preach a message of their doom. I mean, so you can imagine Jonah's emotions are not described for us, but I would imagine that there was some intensity there and probably a lot of fear. His message is short and to the point. Five words in the Hebrew. Now, I don't know if this means this is all that he preached, as if he just went around and said the same thing over and over and over. I don't know if the author here is just giving us a very succinct idea of what he preached without giving us all the details, but I think it's pretty evident that they were given 40 days and God was going to judge them. Now what's curious here is why does God warn them? It's very rare that God would send a Jewish prophet to a Gentile city to warn them that he's going to judge them. God doesn't send a prophet to the Moabites, for example. He doesn't send a prophet to the Philistines. He doesn't send a prophet to the Canaanites before Israel went and conquered the land. And so, it's curious why he would do this. And I have a hunch, and I have two reasons I came up with. There could be more. These could be wrong. This is speculative. But I think because this is a period of time where Israel as a nation were hard-hearted, God did this as a rebuke to his own people. And what I mean by that is Israel was to be a light to the nations, When Jesus came to them, He said, you are the light of the world. Do you remember that? Israel was to be a light in the midst of a dark place and they were to show the world what true worship looked like. Reminds me of those movie premieres that they have. You ever seen like where they roll out the red carpet and the limousines all pull up? And they have these huge lights that shine in the sky. And from 50 miles away, you can see that something's going on over there. I think Israel and their sacrificial system and the way that they ate and dressed and were set apart for God was to be such true worship that it would be evident to the peoples around them that God was really amongst them. Kind of like this sending out this signal. The closest we see to that in the Old Testament was in the days of Solomon. Do you remember Solomon had built this temple and he had such great wisdom and people would come from far distances to see if all of this was really true? We hear of the Queen of Sheba who says, I need to go see this for myself if this is really happening. And so that was a decade or two in the midst of a very dark time in Israel's history or about to enter into a dark time. And I think for God's own holy purposes, He says, okay, Israel, you're not going to reach these nations. I'll do it myself. So that's one idea I have. But I think the other one is kind of joined to that, and that is to demonstrate that 
God is a God of mercy. So if you look at the ancient Near East context, you have all of these different gods of the nations, and they are as wicked as the people who worship them. I mean, they are capricious, and they are angry, and they are wrathful, and they are merciless. And the God of Israel, the true God of creation, is not like they are. He is a God of mercy. So he sends Jonah into this place. And that is point number one. Jonah returns. Secondly, we find Nineveh repents. Nineveh repents. This is verse 5. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not Perish. <clears throat> so here, God used a washed up prophet, literally, to preach the same message again and again throughout the city. Forty days and Nineveh's going to be overthrown. And rather than Jonah being treated like some of those other horrific images we were given rather than being impaled or hanged. The people are overcome with dread and they repent from the least of them to the greatest. Now when people think of the book of Jonah, they think of the story of a man swallowed by a fish, right? I mean, everybody thinks that. And as I stated last week, we don't need to try to figure out what kind of fish this might have been that could contain a man. We don't need to look through our oceans and say, well, it could have been a whale shark. I mean, that's large enough. Or come up with some other idea because the whole incident is meant to communicate a miracle. God appointed the fish. He designed it for this very purpose. It is something that God did that was miraculous. But that's not the great miracle of Jonah. What we see here in Nineveh's repentance is a greater miracle than that of the fish. It is the awakening that is the great miracle of Jonah. God moves upon the people and the multitudes hear the message and believe Him. 
This is a work of God that is greater than appointing a fish to swallow a prophet. It is the miracle of salvation. And notice who was believed. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. It doesn't say the people believed Jonah, which you might expect. But this is what happens when there is a true awakening. When the preaching of the Word goes forth, and a holy dread is upon the people, and there is an awareness of personal guilt, they are not received as the words of a man, but as the very words of God. When Nathan Cole, who I read earlier, heard the preaching of George Whitfield, the reason that there was such an impact upon his soul was not because of the persuasion of George Whitfield. It's because he heard the voice of God. This is what happens when there is a true awakening. The message is a message from heaven itself. Listen to what Jesus said in John 5.25. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And He's not talking about future resurrection. He says an hour is coming and is now here. In other words, He was doing it then. He was causing dead people to be made alive. Ephesians 2.5, Paul says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So, God brings a holy awareness upon a people through the preached Word. And He can even use the repetitious preaching of a reluctant Jewish prophet to do it. It does not depend on the charisma of the preacher. It doesn't even depend on the preacher's attitude toward the audience. But on God who raises the dead. The impact of the message was so effective, in fact, word gets back to the king. He doesn't even hear Jonah himself. He hears it from others. And the king issues a decree that everyone must do four things. He says everyone must fast from food and water, including the animals. Everyone must wear sackcloth, including the animals. I don't know why he makes the animals do this too. Maybe the animals were part of their idolatry and their pagan worship. And he said, well, just to cover all of our bases, let's make it every man and every beast. I don't know. He says that everyone must call out mightily to God for mercy And he says, everyone must repent of their evil and their violence. 
That's what he says in the second half of verse 8. If you notice, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now notice, there was no need for the people to be told what their evil ways were. Do you find that peculiar, interesting, thought-provoking? The king did not list a catalog of sins, just as I imagine Jonah didn't. The issue was not one of having inadequate knowledge of what God considers sin. The issue is always the human will that refuses to obey. I believe that if God so moved upon our nation in a way that resembles the Great Awakening, they wouldn't need to send out letters talking about which kinds of sins the people needed to repent of. I think the people would know what they needed to repent of because when the holiness of God is perceived, then the uncleanness of the individual is seen and sin is then turned from. So God has given us a conscience and our conscience is often hardened through sin and we build up these barriers to protect ourselves from the holiness of God and we rationalize and we justify our behavior and then there's this move of God where He demolishes those barriers and then the people see and they say, I know what I need to turn from. So the people are told to turn from their evil ways and they do it. Now, just because this is a move of God, and I do believe this is a miracle here in Jonah 3, it doesn't mean there are not other contributing factors that led to their thinking in repenting. And what I mean by that is God will often have to humble a people first before he sends them the message of salvation. So let me tell you what was going on with Assyria at the time. Near the time that Jonah was a prophet, this mighty nation had become weakened by a combination of things. There was a severe drought that crippled them. There was a famine. There were military conflicts to the north of them, so they were embroiled in these battles They endured several decades of incompetent kings and that produced uprisings within their own government. So there was lots of division within their own system. Add to all of this, there was a major earthquake at the time and there was a solar eclipse at the time and both of those were viewed by these superstitious pagans as being a omen from the gods that dread was coming upon them. So you have this climate of uncertainty within the nation of Assyria, and then Jonah comes in and he preaches this message that they have 40 days. And so in the case of Nineveh, I think God may have been preparing things for decades beforehand. So God is 
sovereign, that means he is in control of the means as well as in control of the end. And so I think all of these contributing factors coming in at the same time is when God chooses to humble this people. And we see this in personal conversions, don't we? Don't people come to Christ often after God has spent a lot of time humbling them? It prepares the way. He knocks down those walls of resistance and then the message of Christ comes through and they say, yes, please deliver me. So the people repent and the king has hope. Verse 9. This is what the king says. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now this is an indicator to me that Jonah's message did not include forgiveness. In other words, Jonah was not saying, God wants to forgive you. If you just turn, He's going to forgive you. You just need to ask the God of Israel into your heart and say this prayer. No, he was saying, 40 days and God's going to overthrow this place. And I know that because the king is hoping that this God is merciful. Jonah didn't tell him God was merciful. He's hoping he's merciful. Maybe if we do all this, then God's going to relent and not overthrow this place. I think it's fascinating knowing how merciless the Ninevites were and how merciless the kings of Assyria were, how this particular king is hoping that the higher authority above him is merciful. He's hoping for mercy. So we have Jonah returns, we have Nineveh repents, and we have thirdly, God relents. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them and He did not do it. The King James Version, which was the standard English in the English language for hundreds of years, has the word repent. Not meaning repenting from sin, of course, but meaning going the other direction. So if you have the King James Version, it says that God repented of the disaster that He had planned. I thought a cool outline would be Jonah repents, Nineveh repents, God repents. But there's one problem with that. Jonah didn't repent. (laughs) Darn it. That would have been so good. So God relents of the evil that He has planned, which has caused many to wonder, was Jonah wrong in preaching his message? In other words, if Jonah's message is is 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, and that's a message from God, and then in 40 days Nineveh is not overthrown, Does this mean Jonah was wrong? 
In fact, I was in a debate one time with a cult member, and I pointed out that his group had made false prophecies. And he said, well, there's false prophecies in the Bible. And I said, show me one. And he took me to Jonah as if this is a false prophecy. Please. Jonah tells the people that Nineveh has 40 days or they will be destroyed, which is not a prophecy, it is a warning. Okay, Jonah is not saying, thus saith the Lord, I'm destroying this place. Through Jonah, God is warning the people so that they will repent. And this is what God does. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8. He says, if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, then I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So that is exactly what you see here in Jonah chapter 3. The proclamation against Nineveh was not a prophecy of what was coming. It was a warning that the people needed to repent. This is what God used to bring about their awakening. It would do no good for God to choose to destroy them in 40 days, and He's never going to relent from that, and He just wants the people to know He's going to destroy them. There's nothing they can do. There's no hope for them. He just wanted to send a messenger to tell them that He's going to wipe them out. There would be no purpose for that. It was God's intention from the beginning to save Nineveh. And if you remember, Jonah even expected God to save Nineveh, which is why he didn't want to go in the first place. So God sends the message not just to tell people they're doomed, but with the hopes of their turning to Him. This is what happens nationally. This is what happens individually. Ezekiel 18.23, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So God's not doing something out of the ordinary here with Nineveh. He's doing what He always does. When He sends a messenger, He gives them a message And it is not a hopeless message. It is a message of turning to God to be saved. So as we wrap up here, what can we learn from this account of Jonah and the Ninevites up to this point? What can we learn? What does God want us to know here? I have four things. One, we learn that even the most wicked of all people are not outside of God's reach. There are not people groups out there that are too sinful to be redeemed. There are not people in society that because of this sin or that belief or this whatever, 
they just can't be redeemed. They're irredeemable. If the Assyrians are redeemable, then all peoples are redeemable. Secondly, we learn that even God's people, and that includes you, can have a hard heart toward their neighbor. I think Jonah's a righteous man. I I think he's the prophet of God. We're seeing a glimpse of his life that is not his best, I imagine. Um, But I believe he belongs to God. And yet, notice his heart is hardened towards his neighbor whom he's called to love. And so we discover it's not just the Ninevites that need to repent, but it's Jonah also. And sometimes it's us when our heart is hardened toward our neighbor. Thirdly, we are reminded that God is rich in mercy and He offers salvation to people who do not deserve it. And of course, we see this In the cross of Christ, God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet enemies, while we were yet Ninevites, Christ died for us. God is rich in mercy. And finally, we're reminded that we have a commission as well, just as Jonah had. God is calling us to go and to speak. God is calling us to share the news with others about Christ. To tell people that there is a day of judgment that is coming. It may not be 40 days. It could be 40 years. We don't know. But a day is coming when all will have to give an account before Him. And that God sends out His prophets, His men and His women and His children who are given the commission to go and speak to that great city and to warn them of the wrath to come and to tell them of God's grace. Who knows, maybe God has a great awakening planned for this generation. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You that You save to the uttermost. We thank You, Lord, that when You reach down and You reach out, it is all the way down and it is all the way out. And that there is no one that we will lock eyes with in this life that does not matter to You. There is no one that we will come across whose sins are so great and their condition so deplorable that they are irredeemable. We thank You, Lord, that You have given us in Christ everything and that we have a wonderful Savior and that is the Savior who has come to redeem people like the Ninevites, even people like us. So, Father, I pray uh, that You would use us. I pray that You would bless us. I pray that You would give us a heart for our neighbor and that we would love them as ourselves, and that we would not be reluctant like Jonah to give them the good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.